Wonder Things Studios proudly presents Archivos Insights, conversations with today's storytellers. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm Dave Robinson. And I'm John Adamus. And you've tuned in to Archivos Insights. On Archivos Insights, we dissect the storyteller's craft with the shining stars of the literary galaxy, exploring how they craft their ideas so we can improve our storytelling mojo. Indeed, indeed. That is a that is a concise and apt description of our mission statement here on Archivos Insights. Dear friends, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as you may have noticed, uh, uh, that is not Marie Bilodeau uh, speaking to me uh, across the virtual table there. Do to uh, it was me it was totally me uh, uh i i botched it marie is currently off somewhere signing books and entertaining the masses with her storytelling mojo but fret not dear friends because we have uh words actually kind of escape me at the awesomeness of this luck that has come into into our laps We'll give him a proper intro when he returns in a month or so as guest host. But for now, uh, friends, John Adamas is, among other things, an executive editor at Parvis Press, has worked on such projects as Chuck Wendig's Dinocalypse for Evil Hat Games, and is the evil genius behind his own story coaching enterprise called The Writer Next Door, which can be explored in all its writerly glory at writernextdoor.com. John Adamus, thank you so much, man. I am pumped and primed to, to explore some story with you, man. Thanks for making the time. Oh, Dave, this is going to be so awesome. You have no idea. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I, I I am all a Twitter and a, and a flutter at the at the potential awesomeness that is about to ensue. John, I, I know that you know our guest host. Would you mind if I waxed Rhapsodic for a moment and, and uh, introduced him to the podcast world at large? Oh, God, would you please? <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Well cued. Excellent. Uh, friends, uh, our guest host for this episode of Archivos Insights uh, has been on the show before, s- several times actually, as both guest host and co-host, uh, acquitting himself with dignity, style, and humor on all occasions. But you know, because he was one of our first guest hosts, and and seriously, he was like our fifth guest host with his first appearance (laughs) in March of 2012. He came in before I started rolling with the superhero origin stories for our guest hosts. So let's fix that, shall we? (laughs) I contend, dear friends, that in spite of having met him on several occasions, our guest host is indeed a mythical creature. And I can prove it. One, Mythical creatures are born in magical places, often a cave or an island. Our guest host was indeed born on an island, an island, as legend would have it, that was created when the giant Finn McCool, I'm not making this up, tossed a massive hunk of rock at an adversary and missed. The huge swath of earth landed in the sea between Ireland and England, and thus the Isle of Man came to be. Two. Mythical creatures can use magic. Now, the Isle of Man is a tiny 
island, just over 200 square miles. So what does a young man on a tiny island do to occupy his ever-burgeoning imagination? Well, in the case of our guest host, you learn magic. Stage magic, actually, and by all accounts, he was quite good at it. Uh, another factor to consider is that his father was an English teacher, which, among other things, ensured his use of whatever his adopted language would be, it would be precise and hopefully eloquent. Three, mythical creatures have unusual dietary habits. Now, by all accounts, our guest host grew up consuming stories. He grew up in an age when television was a popular babysitter, as many of us did. So he consumed vast quantities of stories through that wondrous contraption. He frequented the local cinemas so often that he was on a first-name basis with the ushers, and they would feed him intel on the best films rolling through the theater. Uh, he depleted the local video store. And yes, youngsters, this was back in the day when VHS was all the rage. Did I mention mythical creatures are often quite old? Uh, <laughs> now, and every time his family would go on holiday to the mainland, he'd pack a huge suitcase with only a change of underwear and a toothbrush so he could lug back a treasure trove of books. Four, while mythical creatures will camouflage themselves to blend in, they inevitably distinguish themselves. His graduating class on the Isle of Man consisted of 300 kids, and to his knowledge, he is only one of two that never went back there to live. Now, interesting side note, the other person that didn't come back actually transubstantiated after eating a bad ham sandwich from a deli in Trafalgar Square, and as such, I think, can be removed from the statistical equation. Five, mythical creatures establish a lair for themselves surrounded by treasure. Now, after attending university in York, our guest host worked at a comic shop for many years. Now, if that doesn't qualify as a lair surrounded by treasure, I don't know what does. He worked there for several years, concurrently dabbling in the sorcery of the internet, where he engaged with the burgeoning online comics community, co-edited a blog, though it wasn't called that back then, and generally honed his skills as a writer and commentator. When the comic shop was forced to lay off staff just to stay afloat, our guest host was one of the unfortunates who were cut loose. As the demands of basic shelter and sustenance became tantamount, our guest host manifested another trait of mythical creatures everywhere. Persistence. Sheer, <laughs> dogged, unrelenting persistence. In spite of the fiercely competitive nature of the freelance writing world, he knew what he wanted to do and he pursued it. Six, mythical creatures undergo strange metamorphoses that activate their powers. Now, two things occurred in our guest host's life that were the equivalent of Duncan MacLeod experiencing the quickening. One was watching Star Trek II. Now, something about that movie touched him in a way that no other film or story had before. It triggered an emotional response that was a startling revelation that storytelling is not just entertainment. It's an intimate engagement with the world that transcends culture and narrative, and he wanted more. 
Then, somewhere around 2006, our guest host sat down at his pea green iMac and activated the weird science of his trusty 56K modem. And amid the wee of the data stream, downloaded the first episode of Pseudopod, a then bi weekly horror podcast co edited by Mer Lafferty and Ben Phillips. He was transfixed and transformed, diving into the world of podcasting with both feet, both hands, and an inflatable rubber horse named Eugene. Uh, I don't know about that last bit. That might be complete BS. But I do know that around episode 49 of Pseudopod, Mer Lafferty was stepping down to attend to other enterprises in her life, and our guest host girded his loins and volunteered. Certain of abject rejection, he was surprised to learn that he was already on a very short list of potential candidates. Another quality of mythic creatures, by the way, is occasional obliviousness of their own awesomeness. Uh, and thus, he became the host of Pseudopod. That was the gateway drug for many of us who came to cherish his afterward musings as much as the splendid horror tales of the podcast itself. And quick sidebar, friends. Hugo nomination season is upon us, and if you've enjoyed hearing the dulcet eloquences of our guest host uh, as he whispers them in your ear as you shiver in the aftermath of a horrifying tale, may I invite you to join me in nominating him for Best Fan Writer. He certainly is that, and more people need to discover this. Continuing the narrative, around 2013, when Escape Artists, the company that produced Pseudopod, Podcastle, and Escape Pod, entered a crisis, our guest host and a colleague rallied to purchase the company. And now, he captains the helm of the most badass audio fiction podcast fleet on the internet. Seven mythical creatures can kick your ass. Our guest host has been studying judo and other martial arts for years. Do not mess with him. He will drop you like a bad habit. Eight, mythical creatures achieve astonishing things. His canon of work spans genre and media. He writes for Tor.com, My M. Buzz, The Guardian, and Sci-Fi Now. He's an Emmy-nominated tabletop RPG writer for his work on Doctor Who, Adventures in Time and Space. His other RPG writing includes The Laundry Files, Primeval, Victoriana, All Flesh Must Be Eaten, N.E.W., and Chill. So basically, whatever apocalypse befalls us, our guest host will have a plan. His first collection of expanded <laughs> podcast essays, The Pseudopod Tapes, is available from Fox Spirit Books, along with many of his short stories in numerous anthologies from the same publisher. Nine, lastly, mythical creatures are rare. And that, my friends, is a quality that is indisputable about him. Within his frail human meat shell, there is a fierce alchemy of forces roiling within him that threaten to shatter reality at any given moment. His deep love of popular culture fuels the engine. His monofilament-sharp command of language is the transmission, but it's his overwhelming compassion for the global community and his boundless appreciation for his peers in the industry that ultimately catalyzes his efforts into a thermonuclear detonation of awesomeness. As a child, he wanted to be a field tester for Action Force toys. His second Pseudopod tapes, compiling his outros for the entire year of 2013 for Pseudopod, is due out any minute now. And if a movie was made of his life, he would love to be portrayed by either Ryan Reynolds or Henry Rollins, or, in a less kind world, Mitch Pileggi. 
which would still be awesome. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome back to the big chair here in the Archivos Podcast Network Virtual Studios, Alistair Stewart. Hey! Hooray! I finally got to stalk you and inter- introduce oh, you. And you're so good at it, too. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so much so, in, in fact, that you know, even though that was like a 10-minute long parade of all the deeply wonderful things about me, the thing which my brain is still chewing over is, oh, David vote Duncan McLeod. I like Duncan. <laughs> Further advancing your nerd cred in the community with all of that, that's what your brain hooks on. I love it. I love it. Uh, Dude, uh, I I know that we're going to go long, uh, so I'm just going to roll into it. I'll I'll go through the motions of setting the timer. uh, Okay. But but let's not kid ourselves, really. It's going to be more of a guideline than a rule, kind of like pirate rules. Um, So let's let's just just dive into this, man. we just recently wrapped up uh, Women in Horror Month, uh, and yes. you have done a wonderful job of, of advocacy, uh, spreading the word of a wealth of incredibly gifted writers of horror uh, uh, of the female gender. And I want to ask a question, and I'm, I'm treading a line here that I, I am very cautious about because I'm struck by the distinction or, or the potential conflict or something between equality and diversity. And I want to make clear as I ask this question that I am not ascribing any value judgment or ascension between male and female writers of horror. Uh, But in the spirit of diversity, we are different people with different life experiences. And I'm wondering, Alistair, have Mm -hmm. you noticed in your vast consumption of, of horror storytelling, is there a difference between the stories of male horror writers and female horror writers. Yes. Uh, the thing which I found, and this is a sweeping generalization, of course, of course, um, which also has to be qualified by the fact that traditionally women in this field are even harder to get the spotlight on than they are in the rest of genre fiction. I have horror stories. I could tell you about that. And unfortunately they really are all true. Um, the thing which I found distinguishes them is it's very easy. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about any superpod author here. But it's very easy for guys who write horror to get caught up in the spectacle. Okay. Um, it's like Grimdark. It's like uh, bad cyberpunk. Guys will go for the tropes. They'll go for the big sweeping gestures, the call to come and from inside the house. Women will go for why is the call coming from inside the house? And it's very easy to suggest that female written horror is lesser. It isn't. Mm-mm. It's more focused. Female written horror tends to be far more character driven and far more consequence driven. Male horror tends to, if it, if it isn't especially self-aware, will fall into leaning on the very tropes that a lot of women written horror will subvert or comment on from the other side. Interesting. Interesting, because those very qualities that you ascribe uh, uh, to to those stories, the the character driven, the the deeper, more intimate uh, terrain that's explored, is is kind of the thing that we all are looking for in a broader sense in our fiction. That topic has come up many times during our discussions here on the Archivos Podcast Network of of what kind of stories impact you the most, that it affect you the most dramatically, uh, uh, and and 
character-driven, intimate tales that focus on the inner terrain and, in this case, the inner horror, which is far more visceral and far more chilling than uh, the splatter gore or the enjoyment of the trope, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's not something which is universal on each side. I, I can name you a raft of female horror authors who cheerfully go for the big laugh every single time. <laughs> And you know, a couple who've made a very good career out of it. Likewise, there are guys. Um, Adam Neville is a perfect example of this. Multiple BFS award winner. Uh, his first movie adaptation hit Netflix about two weeks ago. Uh, the Ritual. It's fantastic. And it's entirely about male inadequacy. No which kidding. I'm aware, even as I say it out loud, is not exactly me selling it on. <laughs> selling the movie. Um, it's, it's about a group of friends. And one of them has the opportunity to do something very difficult and very brave and doesn't, and someone dies as a result. Hmm. And it's absolutely understandable why he doesn't do this thing. And he is, he's us. He is one of the most literal identifying figures, certainly for, you know, a 41.5-year-old chunky white dude from England. <laughs> I, I, watching this, I was like, yeah, that's me. Okay. <laughs> I would totally um, do that, unfortunately, but true. Yeah. Yeah. But that, turns, that means that the movie turns into this literal long dark night of the soul where he and his four mates go off on holiday to try and get over this. And they have a choice between going to Vegas and going to woods made entirely out of murder and death in Sweden. And, well, they don't go to Vegas. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it does a really, really good job of being character driven and being entirely put in the mind of this guy who isn't weak. He isn't a failure. He's just fiercely average. Okay, so, but, so basically, what you're what what you're saying is is that while there are certainly representations on both sides of the gender equation, uh, mm-hmm. and and because I invoked it, we're we're working with that for now. Uh, uh, there, as we as we explore these broader sensibilities, uh, uh, in an effort to perhaps persuade individuals, I'm not sure if I want to read a horror story written by a woman, dude. They. They write good stories. That's the bottom line. Yes. Oh, would would, would you like me to, to, to give you one? Because I can. That's one I can absolutely recommend. Um, Experimental film by Gemma Files, which is one of the first novels I read last year, and which has still stuck with me. It's about a female Canadian uh, film journalist and sort of academic, and about a third of it is very. It's very much like the old Paul Gross show, Slings and Arrows, in that it's very focused on the internal politics of small-scale Canadian academia. But she's also struggling to deal with the fact that she has a son who has behavioral difficulties, and she herself has depression. And in amongst all this, one of her old students comes to her with a lead on a very, very early female Canadian filmmaker whose work was almost believed to have been completely destroyed. And in the space of the novel, she finds out that it should have been completely destroyed. And it does things with form and structure, and it wraps character and spectacle around one another in ways I've never seen before. And I'm, I'm mystified that this in particular didn't get Gemma more attention. All her work is fantastic, but this really is next level. You featured that on Pseudopod, did you not? We've, I think we've had some of her short stories on there. That resonates very strongly. That sounds fascinating. It's it's great. And I mean, it's 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 very easy. kind of externally to to look at the amount of stories like that we've run and go, ooh, Alistair has some pick in the slushing. I really don't. The (laughs) the editors just have, in that regard, have very similar tastes to me. But I would, that's probably the best executed version of that story I've seen. It's it's really very good. 
We'll be back with more of our conversation with Alastair Stewart after this brief promotional break. If you're a storyteller, you need to check out Archivos, a new story mapping and development tool from Wonderthink Studios. Archivos provides storytellers with a unique opportunity, the chance to actually see the network of interaction between the story elements of their settings. Through Archivos's interactive narrative maps, storytellers can discover and explore the patterns and structures that illuminate their stories. Archivos even allows you to share those maps with your readers, providing an utterly unique and compelling format for fan engagement. Archivos really is the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Alastair Stewart. John, let me turn the mic over to you real quick. I, I know that as a as a story coach, uh, you are presented with opportunities to to guide and help young writers uh, uh, and veteran writers, for that matter, evolve their stories in in celebration and commemoration of the the Women in Horror Month. Uh, uh, what is your perception and and experience with horror stories written by a female author? Well, I can speak immediately to the experience. I don't have nearly enough of it. As a reader, I'll devour just about anything. And I have to confess terribly that as a teenager, I was very much one-sided in my readership of everything across genre. And I was regrettably far too dismissive. And I think that unfortunately carried over into my collegiate career where I was still sort of skeptical. And it was uh, a series of terrible catastrophes that had me sort of questioning who writes better and why it had to be better and why there was this sort of unfounded competition that somebody had to win. And it completely, uh, well, let's call it a train wreck that uh, absolutely made me reconsider how people write. And now having been doing this 20 years, I can tell you that the variance in the intimacy versus the activity that Alistair has brought up is absolutely true. And the question I have for Alistair is what does he think or, or what, what lures, what cookies, what praise or what tricks we could uh, engage the other side of the fence with so that more male writers were or would be willing, I should say, to subvert the trope rather than spotlight it? I, that's a fantastic question. And I, I, have, I have kind of a two-pronged response to it. I think the first one is the fact that so many of my authors are unwilling to do that speaks to the volume being turned all the way up on certain elements of toxic masculinity. And that's something which I found through personal experience is massively enhanced unfortunately in geek culture you know i there is a phrase and i i see people who work in the same fields i do use use this again and again and it just makes me despair and it's uh, you know this was very very good here is a sad character beat someone must have been chopping onions and every time i hear that i have the urge to reach you the screen and scream sweet zombie jesus it made you cry own it <laughs> yes just own it and the other thing 
which is which kind of goes hand in hand with that is honesty. Uh, and I feel a lot of genre authors in particular, all of whom will now put me on hit lists for saying this, have <laughs> no doubt. Uh, it's very easy in genre to lean on the tropes. It's very easy to lean on on the on, on the stuff which you know on the Duplo rather than the Lego. And doing the other stuff is really hard. And unfortunately, the industry is skewed in such a way that for, for guys, especially white guys, a lot of the time, you build something decent out of Duplo, it will go fine. You build something complicated and difficult out of Lego, people will go, could, could I not just have had the bunny a lot of the time? <laughs> and in terms of what we can do to aid that, it falls solidly on the press. And it falls, to my mind, it falls solidly on the digital press in particular because... One second, I need to lower my British barriers for a moment. <laughs> British barriers lowered. Whether or not any members of the uh, print press, certainly newspapers are prepared to admit it, digital media has a far longer and far more immediate reach. And right now, that reach is not being used for good a lot of the time. There are vastly powerful advocacy tools available to anyone who's doing this. You have a microphone, a computer, and an internet connection. You can produce something absolutely and it's why we do the focus work that we do at escape artists and it's why you know the other folks who do this do this because it's why events like women in horror month exist because you need to take that first step you need to artificially turn the volume up you need to artificially turn the spotlight onto authors like this and i mean i remember a couple of years ago when um there was a very good point made about the light speed X destroy science fiction fantasy horror specials, which were all fantastic. That those were in, there was a danger of those being used as a destination rather than a, a first step. Mm. And I'm really pleased to see that's no longer the case. Yeah, and with persistence like and continued releasing and exploring of other uh, uh, marginalized segments of the the creative community, it becomes a, a showcase rather than a, a destination, as you say. Exactly. Um, and if more of the press did that, if more of the press did that on a more regular basis, I'll tell you the horror story. It has the serial numbers filed off. Anyone in the UK will be able to recognize what, <laughs> what magazine this was. Uh, a friend of mine who was a female horror author about eight years ago had a very, very politely wrote to a major European magazine and politely asked why um, they didn't feature any book reviews of books by kind of women who wrote horror or fantasy and uh, no it was a horror special and they reviewed they interviewed a whole bunch of horror authors and they're all guys and she wrote to them and very politely said you know had you considered talking to any of these folks and the response she got was oh we didn't think women wrote horror <laughs> now it, it got worse after that. They they doubled down. They defended their position. They were like, oh, well, we didn't mean it. We didn't do anything wrong. All that all usual crap. But the meta point to all that, I think, speaks very strongly to the question that John asked me about three years ago, which is we have to shift the way that the media looks at this. We have to shift the way that genre media engages. And it's really easy to to just engage with big franchises. It's really easy to just engage with clickbait. And more people need to advocate and talk about this stuff. And it will be awkward and weird for a long time. And then suddenly it won't. And that will expand the focus. And, I mean, you see it in 
initiatives like the female fantasy authors in the UK, who consistently and successfully politely petition local bookshops to maybe have more women on the tables laid out instead of the two women and 12 guys. It's getting there. But it's a big lever and it's a big wheel and it's taking a while to turn. But I do sincerely think it's moving and I think we need to do more. I agree. I absolutely agree. Both both that the wheel is turning uh, uh, and that the advocacy for for women in the various genres, for, for other underrepresented cultures in, in, in genre are is being showcased and highlighted as a positive thing, as a good thing. And and the naysayers that may be saying otherwise uh, are, are becoming showcased as distinctly the minority, uh, which is also, in my humble estimation, a good <clears throat> thing. Uh, John, let me turn the mic over to you, man. I know you've got questions for Alistair. What's, uh, what's on your mind? What do you want to put on the table, sir? Well, at the moment, I have a follow-up question, Ooh, actually. Oh, I love those. Bring it. Um, I'm wondering, pursuant to what we just talked about, we, we spoke earlier of advocacy. I'm wondering at what point you think, Alistair, that modeling the behavior partners with or follows advocacy in terms of helping turn the wheel with a bit of a bigger lever. By modeling the behavior, do you mean modeling the behavior of people who oppose this or modeling the behavior of people who are in favor of it? The or- idealized behavior, the good behavior that we want to see. By walking the talk, basically. Yes. Walking the talk. Yeah, okay. I think that's a massive part of it. And the problem I find is this. I work very hard on getting out of other people's way. Um, there's the old John Scalzi line about, I'm a middle-class white man. Life is on its lowest difficulty setting for me. And I'm, I'm acutely aware of that. And whenever possible... And it's not always successful, but whenever possible, I try and use the soapbox I've got to amplify other people's voices. The problem is the moment, no, the line between doing that and the and saying, well, I'm doing this and saying, well, I'm doing this and I really deserve a pat on the back for it, is to quote Monty Python, Waferthin. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I'm, there are so many people who look like they could be my brother in this industry who go, look at all the wonderful work I'm doing. By the way, go over here and talk to these people, but look at me. And I would die before doing that. And the problem with that is this is good work that has to be done quietly. And if you do it quietly, not as many people notice it than if you go, look at me, also this person. Right. Well, and I mean, there's like orders of magnitude of nuance in there as well. But, you know, those that's kind of the broad strokes. Well, and we, we I've noticed the same thing in, in the podcasting community. When we first rolled this podcast out, uh, there, there was a lot on, on you're, you're trying to get attention. I would imagine for a beginning author, it's the same thing. But... What I found in podcasting and and advice that I impart to all writers everywhere is that the success of a podcast is largely dependent upon how much support you're giving to the community, not just in the content of your podcast, but in terms of sharing your bandwidth with other people in your community who are doing the same thing, which seems counterintuitive by the capitalistic uh, measure of winning versus losing, but it's not 
a, a finite game. It's an infinite game where we all win by bringing each other up, which sounds Pollyanna and, and woo-woo and all of that stuff. But I can tell you, after six years of doing this podcast, it's absolutely true. It's how it works. Yes. You know, um, also, I, I just want to want to take a moment to, to point out how incredibly funny the, the total lack of, of vision on people who go, well, why are, you, why are you talking about your project? You just want people to notice it. Is, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I do want people to notice it. I worked hard on this bloody thing. What the hell? You know? <clears throat> well, and I worked hard on it, and it, 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 there's something in here for you. I'm doing this for you because there's something in here that will spark something for you, that will inspire you, that will incite you to a, a course of action that maybe you wouldn't have gone on otherwise. This is an opportunity, uh, and I'm, I, I sound like a freaking salesman, don't I, right now? <laughs> yes. yes yes you do Dave. yes i do but it, you know honestly if you if you don't feel like your work has value a value beyond your contribution to it that that you are actually expanding or adding to someone's life through the things that you are creating why the hell are you doing it yeah exactly and I mean, there's that huge knot of, of insecurities and, you know, um, self-deprecation that so many writers have tied up in there. And it's, it's really hard to do. And I mean, I, I say that as someone who has carved a moderately to reasonably successful career in, in, in sections of this industry that are functionally invisible for yes. that exact reason. But you you got to do it. Yeah. You know? Yep. You do. I, I actually want to ask you, Alistair, there, there's something that has been on my brain uh, uh, for, for actually many years now, and I think you're the guy to talk to about this. Um, the, the role-playing game industry has gone out of its way to embrace storytelling media uh, outside of itself. Uh, uh, and I will reference very specifically the, the Doctor Who role-playing game that you have mm-hmm. worked with extensively. Um, classic example of a licensed property being enlivened in the role-playing game environment terrain. I have thought about running a game in the Doctor Who universe. And based on the stories that we see in the on TV, I don't know how I would do that. Because it seems so subtle and so nuanced. And the story in general, the stories tend to have this the thing that makes them cool is the heart that drives them. So I'm wondering if you can educate me and by association our listeners into what makes a good Doctor Who story slash all caps adventure. I'm actually really happy that you asked me that because I was given a piece of advice about three months ago from one of the guys who edits the new Star Trek RPG, which speaks exactly to that. Excellent. And it's, it's exactly the kind of thing which John's talked about a lot as well. And it's that you have to work out what the thing is about. And it's all well and good saying, well, you know, the USS Bonaventure has to go over here and stop an asteroid from hitting a space station. Great. That's the events. What's it about? What's it about? Yeah. And that, when I, I did the adventure for Star Trek, that helped me immensely because I overwrote that thing to a hilarious degree. <laughs> you know, that, that was, it was my first time out with that game. And they, they basically handed me the keys and I pimped the ride. 
you know, I, I handed them in this thing, which was 3,000 words over long, and you could do Act 2 first or Act 3 first and swap them around. And Jim, bless him, handed it back to me and basically went, this is great. Stop it. <laughs> Calm down. And you do the exact you do the exact same thing with Doctor Who. And I mean there's there's really two answers to your question. The first one is, you know, how can you run a game in such a well established universe? And the answer is the same answer as there is to pretty much every question about running a tabletop role playing game, which is cheat. Uh, I have off the top of my head encountered three massively successful ways to do it. The one that's baked into the Doctor Who RPG is you play the Doctor and you play the Companions. And it's just an adventure that was never filmed. I've seen a group where everyone played regenerations of the same Time Lord who were having to work together. And it was just the most awkward family dinner in history. <laughs> and <clears throat> the last adventure I, I had published, uh, which was in the Silurian Age source book, I kind of backdoored a possible way for a whole bunch of, of other stuff to spin off, which is that sooner or later, someone is going to notice all these crash time machines on Earth and reverse engineer one. So uh, you, one of the ways that this adventure works is you can conceivably do Stargate, where you have the static time window in the basement of the Natural History Museum in London. You tune it to a specific time, step through and have a look around. So from a mechanical point of view, there's any number of ways to do it. Thematically, you kind of have to take it on an adventure-by-adventure adventure basis. Um, to go to use that Silurian Age adventure as, as an example, what action is a bunch of Silurians come through this time window in the basement of the Natural History Museum and invade London. So there's the fight for the three role players out of every five in every <laughs> group who just want to have a fight. And when you capture one of them, it's revealed that these folks have radiation burns and and, resp and respiratory problems and then unit have the yeah we ha we have a time machine um sorry uh conversation with the appropriate time lord and they go downstairs and you find out that this time machine has been jammed on and one of the human scientists is missing so now it's a rescue operation and also there's human conflict as to whether or not the scientist is a traitor and whether she let these Silurians through. So they have to go through the time window, the time window which is open to three hours before the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs hits the Earth. Oh, jeez. So now it's a race against time to go, for, you know, to find out where she is and rescue her. And then when you rescue her, you discover that she's pinned down by a T-Rex, which has been driven mad because there's an implant collar on it. So you stop the T-Rex and you trace the implant collar back. And it emerges that in the frantic scrabble to save the Silurian civilization, where most of them are going into suspended animation and some are going off into space, an extremist military general has taken this opportunity to stage a coup in an entirely scientific city. And the scientist goes through because she sees this Silurian child, who in my original draft was Madame Bastra as a child. And in the published version, in my ongoing uh, history of getting nice try from BBC clearance <laughs> was quietly pain. Um, she goes through to rescue this kid. She gets caught up in these events and it ends up with the players having any manner of options wherein they can make a run back through the window or repair it so that it can be moved around or they go into suspended animation in the Silurian city and take the long way home and wake up that, you know, back in the present day. But what starts off as let's have a gunfight with lizard samurai in the natural history museum 
becomes a story about what happens when you step outside the bounds of your job and what happens when decency and critical and scientific distance collide with uh, immediate problems. And a look at how this alien culture, which has always been presented as a little monolithic, is actually far more fractious, especially on the worst day of its life. So, I mean, this is true of pretty much any tabletop, but you start with the surface level events and you dig down into the themes under them and you try and lock those onto an emotional core, I think. So, so basically, the, the, the thing that I was so intimidated by, uh, the, the, the subtlety and nuance and, and depth of the story in the series, is the exact thing I need to be focusing on in order to make a, a story, whether it's a role-playing adventure or fanfic or whatever, or my own story that parallels those themes, I need to confront that and understand that and, and make it my own in order to tell a good story in that space. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Good. See, confront your fears, friends. They are they are the key and the answer to your problems. Um, speaking of problems, the 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 the, the clock has actually mani- manifested these little bumps around it with this plunger out the front, and it's making noises at me, and I'm not comfortable with that. So I can only assume that we've gone way over time. What a shock! Uh, Alistair Stewart, always a pleasure to have you in the virtual studios, my friend. Thank you so much for your your insight and making the time, man. Thank you so much for having me on, Dave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, as usual here on Insights, there were a lot of insights. (laughs) Mission mission statement achieved. What what are you taking away uh, uh, as as something to hold on to for, for your own writerly endeavors? Oh, I've got two things, Dave. Um, <laughs> Breaking the rules. Go for it. Take get, take yeah. two. It's your first time. Take two. Two things. Uh, first thing, the idea that subverting trope rather than spotlighting it can allow for deeper emotional honesty inside not only uh, horror as a genre, but the majority of genre and the majority of fiction overall. Mm-hmm. And uh, two, more specific to Doctor Who, it's all about the optimization of best care underneath layering consequences. Nailed it. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. God. And that, and that phrase right there has a lot of unpacking to be done. Uh, uh, and I will, by God. For, for myself, it was understand what your story is about. And because there's a there's a, a strong tendency for many of us, me, uh, to to <laughs> get lost in the world building and the coolness and the wow factor and the thing. I'm very much, I think, uh, in my writing and, and gaming at this stage, uh, one of those people who is very much into the whiz bang and the showcase and the, the call is coming from inside the house, yada, yada. Um, but understanding what that story is about instantly pairs away all of the extra hoo-ha and the confusion and the weirdness and actually presents, you know, certainly not one line, but a very clear set of options of storyline to pursue uh, where you can then discover your own voice within that space, which I think is, is, at least for me, a revelation. That's fabulous. Friends, I, I hope your brains are, are uh, a fire and fuego from the insights and inspirations that were shared during that awesome 20-esque minutes of conversation. Uh, now, here's the awesome thing about the Archivos Podcast Network. Come back in seven days. 
We'll have Alistair back. We'll have John back. I'll be here. We'll add to this equation of awesomeness uh, a guest writer to set the table for a brainstorming feast. And we will tuck in like hungry, hungry hippos and start brainstorming an amazing tale. It will be fascinating. It'll be intriguing and inspiring. It's also going to be seven days from now, which is a long damn time. I understand. John, do do you have any suggestions to our listeners on some enterprise they might undertake to make those seven days just fly by. Oh, you mean aside from the fact that they maybe don't want to be a hippo if they're a hungry animal voracious for story? (laughs) Stereotypes! Stereotypes! Damn it! Yes, yes, Dave, I can think of a few things they can do. Uh, For instance, they can go to support their local bookstore, or perhaps they could support their local library, and they could find someone else who they know also wants to be a writer and just encourage them. And then give them not only the Archivist podcast, but other materials that are available out there and say, here, I'm doing this thing too. Why don't you join me on this ride and we'll see where it goes. I like that. Fostering community, local and global at the same time. And and in the process, elevating the whole thing that you love to begin with. I'm down. I am totally down. That's awesome. I, I will tell you, friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So if you look for the wow, look for the holy crap, look for the dying out in the world, trust me, friends, you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Archivos Insights is copyrighted 2017 by WonderThink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org. Theme music for this episode of Archivos Insights was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash archivospodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.